1: Welcome
2: to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. I'm delighted to be speaking today with my friend Ellen Agler. Ellen serves as the CEO of the END Fund, a private philanthropic initiative working to see an end of the suffering caused by five neglected tropical diseases affecting 1.5 billion people. The END Fund actively supports programs with dozens of partners in more than 25 countries with a focus on sub-Saharan Africa. Previously, Ellen served as Operation Smile's Senior Vice President, international programs, managing programs to provide comprehensive care to children with cleft lips and cleft palates in over 60 countries. Ellen is a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Health Security Advisory Board and the Uniting to Combat Neglected Tropical Diseases Stakeholders Working Group. She holds graduate degrees in international health from the Harvard School of Public Health and in development studies from the London School of Economics. Her first book, Under the Big Tree, Extraordinary Stories from the Movement to End Neglected Tropical Diseases, has just been released from Johns Hopkins University Press, with a foreword by Bill Gates. Welcome to the Meta Hour, Ellen. It's
0: wonderful to be here, Sharon. Thank you so much for inviting me.
2: Thank you for, for coming and for, for participating. Um, I'm so happy to have you here. We are friends. We've been friends for years. Uh, and I'm... I'm so inspired by your work and uh, I've just been on the periphery of it, you know, on different occasions and um, and have gotten to see you uh, in action, which is kind of great.
0: Well, you are most certainly an inspiration for me in writing this book. I remember speaking to you about it, one of our meditation groups early on when I was thinking about it and your encouragement uh, definitely helped me get the, uh confidence i needed to to take the leap so thank you for accompanying me and encouraging me through this process
2: mm, i'm really thrilled that you that you did it so let's start with what brought you to the field of public health and humanitarian affairs i should say when i was um young and in india uh you know i had friends involved in the anti smallpox campaign and, and it was such an outstanding uh instance you know of epidemiology and public health and uh, what could really change for people. And uh, it's sort of an indelible impression in my mind.
0: Is that Larry brilliant? Yeah, it's
2: Larry. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. It's the stories I think are incredible. The early smallpox warriors, I think are inspirations to a lot of us that ended up in public health. My journey actually started out in journalism and I wanted to be a writer growing up, and I wanted to – I thought that would take me down a path of journalism. I started working as a freelance journalist actually in high school um, and then through college, and I had an editor who would always send me off on assignment to cover something, and I ended up getting just very attached, I think, to the stories that I covered. Uh, I remember one time covering um, uh, a commission for the blind that was having financial troubles. And so I ended up, you know, volunteering and reading books for the blind or uh, in the area that I was living growing up in Boise, Idaho, we had a lot of uh, refugees resettled from uh, Bosnia and was writing a story on that and ended up volunteering to sort of help um, tutor in English and help take them to the grocery store, some of the families that I met. And he sort of had this, you know, he said, I think you're getting a little too attached. And I sort of thought, I realized that I I loved interviewing people and I loved kind of diving deep into people's stories and the stories of the world around me. But then I also had this deep urge to do something about it more than write a story about it. So I, um, at the time, started looking for something and whether you know, first I applied to the Peace Corps and I mean, in my generation, I don't think I could have named more than maybe Doctors Without Borders as a international NGO mm-hmm. if I just didn't have a big visibility into what that could mean. I just knew that I wanted to help people and um, met someone who was connected to Operation Smile. And that was my first work in public health. And I was hooked after doing that work. I really decided that that field of global health was a place I could make a big difference and didn't didn't turn back. And actually, um, you and I both know um, Robert Thurman as well. In my, mm-hmm. my first year of undergrad, I took a class on Indo-Tibetan Buddhism. And I remember the Eightfold Path having a very big influence on me. Mm. And I had it sort of printed out and put on my wall (laughs) in college. Yeah, and that idea of right livelihood Mm -hmm. really stuck with me. And I also thought I wanted to find something to do with as many years as I could live that I felt was really aligned with um, the world that I wanted to see and the, the path that I wanted to take and impact I wanted to have in the world. And so I think just the convergence of different things took me down this path of global health. And I've just been so blessed and feel so lucky to be able to serve and make a difference in this way.
2: It's funny. Cause I think if I had not become a meditation teacher or an author, I would have wanted to be an epidemiologist maybe because of <laughs> wow. those early, you know, friends like Larry and or brilliant who were working in the oh. small box campaign. But there's a, there's a certain element, um, at least in in that kind of work of trying to solve a mystery you know you're looking at all these causes and conditions and trying to figure out like where's the best intervention you know like uh what's going to make the most what's going to have the most impact what's going to make the most difference and uh it's a little bit like a mystery
0: i love that i love that i think that's so true actually i hadn't thought about it before that meditation and epidemiology have so much in common but (laughs) Um, (laughs) it's sort of when you're thinking about what's the right kind of mindfulness or Mm -hmm. what's the right kind of practice for the particular symptom that
1: you're,
0: Mm -hmm. um, you're dealing with it. Um, and it's also very, both very practical. I mean, I think that's what I really like about meditation and about public health is it's something, um, the impact can be so clear and so immediate and have such a visible difference to, you know, my life personally and the lives of others, Mm um, but I love that I I actually um, just spent some time um, in Hawaii for the holidays with my family. Mm-hmm. And I was in Kauai and I was uh, reminded of and actually visited the place that one of our mutual friends passed away a few years ago, Jamie Zimmerman.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And she used to talk about um, meditation medicine.
1: <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just,
0: I hadn't thought about that for a while, but that idea also of like, there's a prescription for types of meditation if you really can understand the underlying cause and conditions. That's
2: great. Well, one of the things uh, my Burmese teacher, said, Upandita, used to say, it was a little hard to understand what he was saying, but Mm -hmm. he basically said, we go to the doctor for a cure for the disease, but really there's no disease. Mm -hmm. So what he was trying to say was that um, the disease is not one thing. It's causes and conditions coming together, like maybe the bacteria gets to thrive because um you know, a patient is too hot or there's a lot coming together. that in the end we call that disease. Oh. Uh, but what we really need to do always is look at the contributing causes. You know, if we can yeah. take away some of those causes, maybe the bacteria doesn't get to thrive, you know, or, you know, you don't end up with um, kind of working backwards, you know, trying to trying to keep the um, entity, w- which we have a name for, you know, uh, from getting overwhelming, you know, and so it's it's kind of a, an interesting take on causes and conditions and uh, contingency and looking at for the broadest array of conditions that, that one can.
0: Yeah. I I think it's maybe one of the things that's harder for me in this work
1: Mm -hmm. is
0: I, I mean, it's, the, the, I work on five specific diseases, or at another time, I might mm-hmm. be working on, you know, responding to medical needs after a tsunami mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. surgical care for kids. And in some ways, that's the disease, not the condition.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then you pull a thread, and it's linked to, you know, a tsunami. The reason that when I was in uh, Indonesia after the tsunami, 200,000 people died was because. The housing conditions were so bad, you know, the poverty, it was just like where, how structures were built, how close structures were built. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at, well, why, why, why are kids having to wait until they're 15 to have cleft surgery that they should have had when they were six? Mm -hmm. Or why do they have some of these neglected diseases um, like schistosomiasis or intestinal worms? A lot of it is related to access to clean water and Mm -hmm. Mm meditation and education, and, I mean, I've always struggled with working in organizations that are, you know, sort of their mission is just end poverty because I feel like
1: right. you know, you're sort
0: of boiling the ocean and like pick something where you yeah. can make a difference yeah. and something tangible, but also with a recognition of what is the system that that's nested within mm-hmm. that particular mm-hmm. issue and how can you work um you know how can you work as centrally to the problem as possible mm-hmm. or how can you ensure that the issues around it that you're coordinating well with um but i think it's 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 hard because a yeah. lot of work in public health and development you are you're dealing with the symptoms not necessarily mm-hmm. the core problem um and i think for me it's figuring out like where to spend time and and recognizing there's sometimes other actors or sometimes i feel like in your life when you can solve one thing it can give, I've seen this over and over when people like have um, a particular disease that they're able to overcome or access to care, then it gives them like confidence and motivation and a boost. I mean, mm-hmm. something like deworming, it seems so simple, but you know, then it's linked to um, a reduction in 30% of um, absenteeism from school and mm-hmm. higher wages mm-hmm. when you're older. And if you add deworming with also school nutrition, with also quality education, i So I do feel like we have to break it all down into tangible pieces that Mm -hmm. each of us can feel like we can contribute to. Thank you so much. Yeah,
2: it is hard. And and I was trying to – I couldn't even frame the question quite, but you're right. It's Mm. exactly that question. Mm. And then, you know, I guess the the next aspect of that, because I think your work is so important, is, like, can you do follow-up to see that, Mm -hmm. oh, the fact that – Deworming has had on not just the individual life, which is beautiful uh, and vital, but on the society in some ways. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you just yeah. said it.
0: Yeah. And I think that's what we saw in this country, even with, you know, we eradicated trachoma and hookworm a hundred years ago. And I think that's one of the problems with some of the diseases I work on. People forget that they were such a problem, even in, you know, our own communities' lives um, and what a change, what a dramatic increase. I mean, it wasn't possible to, um, you know, really have a productive farming um, and agricultural economy in the American South until hookworm was dealt mm-hmm. with, because everyone was living with such vast amounts of anemia and illness that there weren't, you know, people, uh, they thought, you know, they used to call it the laziness disease, but it wasn't laziness at all. It was illness. there and I think I see that in so many places now that just the baseline of what is considered healthy is actually ill. You know, that there's a you know not um full growth, that there's not able to fully thrive um because of sort of the burden of different diseases. So I think that's sort of what we're looking for is human flourishing in general. And there's a lot of different pieces that need to be in place to get there.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But it's so great. I mean, it's also great to sort of feel you know, your your role, you know, or like the intervention that uh, both inspires you and is actionable that, you know, you can get something mm-hmm. done.
0: Yeah, and I think I feel really lucky in this day and age. I mean, I think I have a lot of friends who feel paralyzed mm-hmm. about the situation in the world and angry and confused and not sure what to do and where to start. And I think that I feel grateful that I'm, I I have
1: mm-hmm. a place to
0: start. <laughs> and, and I've always loved the sort of a Stephen Covey thing, you know, in business leadership books where you've got this circle of influence versus your circle of concern in the world. Mm-hmm. And your circle of concern might be much larger than the actual circle of influence you have. But if you spend all of your time on your circle of your energy, you know, on your circle of concern and you're kind of lost in worry uh, versus where can you place in your circle of influence, which is a lot about mindfulness. Like, mm-hmm. what can I do now? Who can I call? What can I write? What can I do? Who can I help? That's quite actionable and tangible. And as you put your energy into your circle of influence, that actually grows over time. And so I think that's um I think that's hard in this day and age to just find that sort of tangible way of how do I how do I serve without just getting overwhelmed and su- sucked into sort of the cycle of despair about mm-hmm. the state of the world.
2: We'll definitely we'll get there in a minute. <laughs> so, um, uh, Could you just briefly uh, mention or describe the five diseases?
0: Sure. Um Well, one are, as I mentioned, intestinal worms. So, that's three worms actually hookworm, roundworm, and whipworm. Those affect over a billion people. And oftentimes, those are, you know, cause anemia, can cause stunting, can affect nutrient absorption, and especially in children can have a really big impact. Um, We've seen, you know, I've actually seen some. Kids with such severe uh, worms in their intestines that they have to have surgery, mm-hmm. and you see, like, just you know, taking out sort of clump after clump of these live worms that are eight to twelve inches long. And a child with a just a moderate infection that can be 200 worms in their intestines. So it just really wreaks havoc on a child's body. And deworming's pretty simple. One of the things about the five diseases we work on is all of the medicines are largely donated or extremely inexpensive. Um, to treat. So just regular deworming while kids are growing up, um, combined with prevention efforts is really important. The second is a disease called schistosomiasis, which is transmitted through uh, freshwater snails that have a parasite. So if kids or adults are spending time in lakes or rivers, which often you do if you don't have a water source, you're bathing, swimming, uh, washing, um, there and uh, the parasite comes out, kind of slips into the bloodstream, and then can live there undetected for honestly decades. It's amazing how sly and clever these parasites are. One of the, a scientist who works on schistosomiasis told me it's like they wear like a Harry Potter invisibility cloak <laughs> <laughs> to stay protected inside the body, but then they wreak havoc on the urinary tract, on the liver. Um, and about almost 200,000 people per year die of schistosomiasis. So mm. uh, next to malaria, it's the deadliest parasitic disease. And about 200 million people um, need treatment for that globally. A third disease is lymphatic filariasis. That, uh, it's worms that uh, pass through a, a mosquito uh, that live in the um, lymphatic system. And so, as you get, you can get literally millions of those in your body and it could cause elephantiasis. So, you've seen people with elephantiasis of the legs, can sometimes be other body parts as well, really disabling. Um, You know, I've just met people who, you know, have uh, the size of their leg might be 10 times the normal size. So, it's hard to walk. They're, you know, really marginalized from their community. So, it's certainly not just the physical, but also mental health and stigma issues around some of Mm -hmm. these diseases. Um, and that's almost a, uh, a billion people that need treatment for, for that disease. Um, and then blinding trachoma, which is a, actually a bacteria infection and passed through uh, a bacteria that lives, um, oftentimes can be passed by flies. And it's it, you see on people's eyes where uh, they, if the bacteria gets so um, bad that it'll turn the eyelashes inward. So every time that you blink, it can just be really painful. It mm-hmm. feels like sand crossing your cornea, and it can turn your eyelashes inward so much that it you um, go permanently blind. And um, that also can be treated early stages uh, pretty pretty well. And then the other one we work on is river blindness, which actually has been worked on for many decades, about uh, 30 years there's been treatment for river blindness. It used to be um, through uh, aerial spraying on with helicopters. It was terrible for the environment. The World Bank had that as their first health program, Um, and then there was an amazing drug that was developed. Actually, I interviewed as part of the book um, the gentleman who invented that medicine. He won the Nobel Prize a few Mm. years ago. Amazing, um, very humble person. And and now it doesn't cause as much blindness, but it can still cause – um, in some places, there's hot, still hot spots of that disease, and also it can cause this itching um, because of the worms under the skin, so much so that the, you get to see these what are called leopard spots. And Actually, people say the, the pain of the itching, the constant itching, um, is almost worse than blindness. Because it's just uh, unbearable pain. So between those five diseases, what's great is that they really all are treatable, um, preventable you know, there, if people already have the disease, there's medicines available, but they're at such a huge scale. Um, but we've really been a part of the, the N-Fund, the organization that I lead, and many other partners really working to scale up treatment for all of these diseases. Mm-hmm. And amazingly, just in the last couple of years, we've reached the point where we are treating a billion people a year. And that's a part of a huge global concerted effort. And and actually there's less people now at risk than there were even ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, hundreds of millions of people now do not need treatment anymore for some of these diseases. Things like blinding trachoma and um river blindness have been eliminated in a number of countries. So it's uh I think it's exciting to see this, you know, it's one of these problems that is solvable and sort of in our in our lifetime.
2: Oh, it's incredibly inspiring. How wonderful. I mean. Hmm um because then you know uh the the picture is of um you know possibility it's like human possibility Uh and Uh cultural change because uh you know nothing else really is going to happen if you're suffering that much and um you know the, the sense of uh being able to contribute whatever you know actively as a family member as a member of society it's beautiful
0: yeah i mean there's one um, person that i talk about in the book who i met early in my time with the end fund who was a a, a fisher he's a he's a car washer actually Mm -hmm. at the lake victoria in kenya named simeon and car washing there is you pull up your car literally into the side of the lake so that the water's going up maybe halfway Mm -hmm. up the tires (laughs) <laughs> and, and the car washers are standing in the lake all day and they, you know, use the the, the lake water to wash your car. So um, it's great for the car and the washing, but it's terrible for people who have to stand in this water for 12 hours a day mm-hmm. or more uh, because this, those freshwater snails that have the parasite for schistosomiasis are there. And they used to, when I was talking to Simeon, he said, oh yeah, everybody knew that if you were a car washer that you wouldn't live beyond the age of 40. But you also need knew you needed to feed your family, and you needed a life. And um, he's, you know, he had been taking the medicine for schistosomiasis. He had had it in the past, and he would have been treated now. And he just said, "I'm so happy I can, you know, provide for myself and provide for my family. And being a car washer isn't a death sentence
1: mm-hmm.
0: anymore." And you know, you think that's, you know, and the same thing. The woman I was with, a woman. Nieva, who received um, surgery for trachoma, once it gets so bad, sometimes you have to flip the eyelashes back um, so that they're not scratching the cornea. Mm -hmm. And her dream was just to not go blind so she could keep, you know, tending to her vegetables and being a help to her daughter, Mm -hmm. watching her grandkids. And I think it's, yeah, it's those very practical things. People just want to continue with their lives and their livelihoods and being of service in the way that they can. And you know, having one of these diseases can
2: really, really hold people back. Gosh, it's just amazing. I'm wondering, um, you made me think about the first time I went to India Hmm. and how I had a kind of a paradoxical sense that I felt really at home. And at the same Hmm. time, I had massive culture shock, you know, and I was like, really? (laughs) You know, so I was gonna ask you, did you ever get culture shocked? Do you ever like, I don't think now, but, you know, in the beginning, was it sort of an adjustment to being in so many different uh, societies and ways of being?
0: Um, Well, I grew up and my father was in the military, so Mm -hmm. I moved around a lot. I lived a number of different places in the U.S., from small towns with 15,000 people in Idaho to, you know, Washington, D.C., and lived abroad in Germany, uh so I didn't live in developing countries, so mm-hmm. certainly when you experience that level of poverty, I think it's it's a shock mm-hmm. um, so early on, probably in my work, it was much more it was and i remember I remember like one of my first times with Operation Smile and just the shock of realizing that several hundred children had come that needed surgery. And there was only supplies and time and ability to, you know, treat a hundred. And we're going through this process where we had screened all of the mm. kids and then and then there was this process of making the surgical schedule. And somehow this was more of a cultural shock to me than just driving to the village and seeing the conditions of people's homes was having to just say, look, go to the chart and be like, Okay, yes, no, yes, no and I thought, wait, these are just like human lives that yeah. are we don't have time. Okay, not this one, okay, this will fit, okay, this age. You know, this one's somatic hemoglobin is better, so better chances, likelihood for surgery, and it just all seemed so random. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I was, you know, ended up in a bathroom in tears. So mm-hmm. I can't believe we can't do more. Um, and and I mean, there's times that things that have been really, really tough. I think for me, just the. You know, I visited once a, a a children's prison in Haiti, and. Or when I first went to Indonesia after the tsunami and there were still thousands of bodies everywhere. I mean, there's, those aren't necessarily cultural shock. That's just human nature mm-hmm, shock. Like mm-hmm. you just never expect to see that in your life. And I think it's a readjustment of every pore of your being to see such deep sadness and misery.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but cultural shock, I think in some ways I've had the sense of the, the kind of people who come around and work in global health are often – I, I feel like, oh, no, I feel at home. I found my tribe. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In some ways, I'm extremely comfortable with people who have multiple locations as their identities that when someone asks them, where are you from, they never know quite how to answer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and who feel um, very much formed and informed and um, by a lot of different cultures, even the ones that aren't necessarily your own. I mean, mm-hmm. it's sort of funny, I've spent more of my Time and life in developing countries um, than I have in the U.S. In many ways, you know the amount mm-hmm. that I've traveled and lived abroad now. Um, so I, I think I and I I enjoy that about travel. It's just it's a way of keeping awake in some ways. Just a, a delight in being surprised mm-hmm. by different cultures. I think the harder part for me and the shock maybe when people think of culture shock is more just of the shock of Inequity
1: or Mm -hmm.
2: the shock of suffering Yeah well It's a kind of vicarious trauma Mm -hmm. Which Mm -hmm. uh, is very real As you know I was part of a Garrison Institute program For about four years working with domestic Violence shelter workers Mm -hmm. Frontline workers and then um, The Institute decided they wanted to Transform that program To be more international So it's really redesigned Mm -hmm. for international Humanitarian aid workers And um, And uh, I really kind of saw the difference between like having a bad day and burnout and Uh
0: uh,
2: really more overwhelming, vicarious trauma because it's very real. It's like, um, you know, you've had tremendous success with the work with the end fund, but sometimes it's a slog, you know, you Uh don't see such glorious results right away and you just have Uh to keep going. And,
0: Mm -hmm. or
2: or you know i learned so much like um you know working with with those people just seeing that some very young people were making some very momentous decisions like should i evacuate my team yeah you know is it safe to be here Or, or hearing that when one started um spiraling down if one does you know and feeling more overwhelmed and burnt out and heading toward you know some real vicarious trauma and uh, you know, one of the first things to go is safety procedures. Uh. You know that you stop taking care of yourself, basically. You know, which only makes it worse. And so, you know, the, there's a lot to look at in terms of burnout in general. I think in these in these this work that can confront suffering so directly.
0: I think it's one of the beautiful things about sort of the modern age and access we have to so many teachings. I remember mm-hmm. being with you at the Skoll World Forum mm-hmm. on social entrepreneurship, and you said someone came up to you and said, "Oh, your your meditations on loving kindness saved me
1: mm-hmm.
0: during uh, the Ebola response." And they mm-hmm. were listening to them. And I think, yeah, I've I've listened to your meditations and others while I was driving through Burundi or needing, you know. And I think that just the access and the rem- reminder to whether it's you know meditate or other forms of self care no matter where you are in the world. Um, I just think there's so many great tools now that we're really lucky to have.
2: So the work of the end fund, um, is this right, that it, it sort of funds local entities that are doing the direct care work? Is that right?
0: Yeah, we're not doing um, the direct care. We're the model of the end fund. It mean, a lot by um, folks that were from the financial world. So when they thought of the fund model, they thought, you know, there's great organizations out there. There's great people. There's great local partners. Maybe we could create something like a portfolio approach where we support lots of different efforts taking place around these five diseases.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Help find efficiencies between them. Um, help just fund great organizations that need some more support. And in some places, we help find smaller organizations that need a lot, um, a lot more than just funding. They may need help on guidelines and technical assistance and how to design and implement a program or they may not have known how to access the donated drug program before or, you know, be linked into global best practices. So, and just have that flexible platform. So we've done, what we've done is mapping sort of the entire sector to see Mm -hmm. who's doing what where and what's working, where are the gaps and where can we help support things to help scale up Um, treatment, uh, map impact, and so that's meant that we, yeah, we have this portfolio of supporting lots of different partners. Some of them are really small, local, like Congolese uh, nonprofits or uh, Nigerian nonprofits, and some we're funding the government directly to, like we're funding the Ethiopian government to help scale up on a national level their school-based deworming program. Um, And sometimes we're supporting larger um, international NGOs or sometimes it's just, you know, academic partners that we need to bring in to help with a certain type of very specific um, epidemiological mapping to have a better baseline, a more specific baseline to know where to treat for the diseases. So I think that's been um, a good approach for us. Mm -hmm. It's, It's really helped us learn. It's also helped us just rely on. Those who are closest to the problem, Mm -hmm. I think we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. And we we certainly, especially when we can support local partners who are, you know, have been there a long time, are going to continue to be there. I think it's a great, it's a great way to promote sustainability and local ownership. Um, But it's been a a great partnership with so many people so far. And I think it's helped with impact. I mean, it's it's amazing because I think it's one of the things that attracted me to this work is any kind of problem that affects a billion people just requires immense amounts of collaboration Mm -hmm. to make sure you're not duplicating efforts, especially in a field that has such limited resources. I mean, the amount of funding that's in the neglected tropical disease space compared to what the need is, there's just not enough resources. Mm -hmm. And so everybody is trying to figure out how to make a dollar go the furthest and how to ensure you're not over-treating and ensure that when, you know, a disease has been eliminated that you're know mapping that um and you're really proving that and so i think that's been just a pleasure for me i think it's sort of in my dna to collaborate mm-hmm. and i really like um that aspect of the work
2: and when you say collaboration i i think of listening and i think uh-huh. of listening uh i think of meditation practice so
1: uh-huh.
2: i'm wondering uh-huh. if you could say something about the role of your your practice and in, in your work
0: it's interesting because we had a board meeting recently and someone said that they're like about um, about my listening ability to yeah. listen. And I think I was like, I don't even know what you know, I sort of
1: <laughs> taking it for
0: granted. But I people say that a lot, like you're just amazing at listening. And I think, well, isn't that part of the job? Uh-huh. <laughs> isn't that what uh-huh. this is all about?
2: It's a but big guess, compliment.
0: <laughs> to me, that's a huge compliment. Uh, sometimes I think when people you know, have an idea of being the CEO that you do a lot of talking or something. And I think, oh, I think you have to do a lot more listening than mm-hmm. talking. Um, because it really is about synthesizing a lot of different pieces of input before you make any action. And I still find it hard. I mean, meditation, I don't know. I guess those of us with like the, um, everybody maybe finds it hard to meditate, but mm-hmm. no matter how many years of practice I have, I still feel like I just, I can easily get into just overactive mind, overthinking mind and just having a time every day or hopefully every day Mm -hmm. to sit and breathe and notice my thoughts and sort of just let them pass or do a really intentional loving kindness meditation or listen to a great teacher. Um, I find it just brings me back to center and, and just helps me really, feel into what is the you know quality of my attention and what's the you know quality of my presence with someone else and and sometimes that can be trying to incorporate that into my day just saying okay I'm about to have a difficult call or a conversation let me just take like one minute to refocus Mm -hmm. or I've always loved you're saying anytime that you're waiting Mm -hmm. use that as a time to do meta. (laughs) I try to incorporate that when I'm in a cab when I'm waiting in line (laughs) Because I think it's easy to just get you know frustrated, and I, especially I think the the speed of our daily lives and the amount of work that we're trying to get through. I, I was I had this. I remember thinking when you know email first came out. and I'm you know dating myself, but thinking, oh, this is going to make our lives so much easier. <laughs> and instead, <laughs> I'm like, how can I? get you know, like, like a thousand emails a day. <laughs> you could just be a slave to that. And I think just taking the time to you know, be still and focus. how has helped me prioritize, as well as hopefully helped me be just a better partner. And I think, you know, partnership is is has to be in so many different levels in this kind of work. You know, mm-hmm. to the the beneficiaries, to the team that you're working with, to the donors that you're working with. Um, there's so many people who, and I also feel like if you really want to build and be a part of building a movement. You're trying to create different on-ramps for people, and so and sometimes a sector. I remember first being in this work, and a funder that I was working with said, "Oh, I don't really want to be in this field. I don't. I don't speak NTDs. Like neglected tropical diseases, is just a lot of acronyms. There's a lot mm. of the, the diseases you can hardly pronounce." <laughs> I thought, "Oh, that's not what we need. How do we make this? How do you meet people where they are? Mm-hmm. I think that's what it is about listening. Like, where are they coming from now?" And how do we then go on a journey together? But if you're not willing to take take that time to deeply listen and find out where people really are now, then I think the journey won't ever be as effective.
2: That's great. So do you have much contact with staff of the organizations actually doing the direct service work, you know, where the level of frustration or impatience or just having a different kind of time frame could be? could be really relevant, you know, and, and holding someone back. Um, I'm just yeah. wondering what an organization can offer uh, because so much of my own work has been with the caregiver, you know, yeah. uh, uh, whether it's personal or professional that, you know, what can an organization actually offer
0: uh, the team? to the team? Well, I mean, we've had you come in and speak to the mm-hmm. team a couple of times. That's been immensely valuable and people have, Um, really commented and how much they've appreciated some of the tools or we, you know, gave the um, real love at work book out to Mm -hmm. the team a number of years ago. And we also brought in someone to do as part of our team retreat, the half day Google search inside yourself Mm -hmm. curriculum. And that was great. People still just mention that, um, bring up tools for that uh, on a frequent basis. And I think having things that are, quite non-secular, very science based
1: mm-hmm. um
0: with a really diverse staff. Um just makes it more approachable for everyone. Um, I think that there's a you know a subset of, of people who really have wanted to do and take it a lot deeper and have reached out for more, you know, we have a, a professional development um sort of allowance and if people can kind of link it to the their work of doing some kind of mindfulness work, we've supported that as well. Um, and I'm always sort of giving, you know, if people ask, they know that this is an interest area of mine, you know, advice on mm-hmm. books or apps or, um, you know, audio things to listen to. Um, but I do think that there's a role very much so in <clears throat> what organizations can provide. And there's so many examples now. I mean, it's amazing. You've seen this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, you just must be amazed at going in your lifetime from mindfulness seeming like a weird thing to Mm -hmm. like so many there's being like a million and one corporate programs on mindfulness (laughs) I know I don't know if they're all doing them well or consistently (laughs) or I hope it's not like a phase that everyone gets over and does something different because I do feel like it just takes a commitment but there's more people that have come out of the closet I mean even for me I don't think I spoke publicly about having a mindfulness practice until um, really maybe the last six or seven years Um, but I think that that The more people do, um, I think the more people realize it's just something to talk about, not only at home, but at at work as well.
2: That's really great.
0: (laughs) But I don't know. I'm I'm always curious, Sharon. Do you have any other tips for us for those Uh leading organizations?
2: Well, actually, I I want to talk about your book now, because when you say books and apps and all that, I mean, your book isn't. Strictly speaking, like the offering of tools or methods, but just the narratives are are yeah. I think what strike us the most deeply, and uh-huh. to find ourselves in the example of of someone else, you know, someone else willing to do that work or someone else receiving that work, and um is is an incredible service. Just making that link between people, which uh-huh. we do through the vehicle of narrative so often. Yeah, that's true,
0: and I think. What I realized when I first entered this field was that the most of what is written about neglected tropical diseases is in you know, peer-reviewed academic journals, highly technical, and there wasn't, it was like a missing tool out there mm-hmm. to have something that was really narrative and story-driven, and I realized what inspired me so much and what I was so moved by were these just personal and incredibly powerful stories of people serving on the front line, Um, you know, whether it's delivering medicines or people who, you know, had the diseases and were able to overcome them or, you know, ministers of health uh, or, you know, teams inside of governments that were really just fighting every day to make sure that these diseases got treated or philanthropists or people inventing medicines. Like I really wanted it to be like a sampling of the entire ecosystem that of this work, but from very, very personal stories. Mm -hmm. And I think I just i love, personally love the process of interviewing and going deeper um into people's inspiring lives i mean i'm there's one woman in the book who I interviewed who um is in her mid nineties named lady Jean wilson and she and her- she, her husband was blind and after World War II, they went out to visit the colonies and to see what they could do to be helpful and ended up coming back and starting the um british um Royal Society of the Blind, uh, or it was called the Empire Society for the Blind at the time. Now it's the Commonwealth Society for the Blind,
1: but
0: <laughs> it, and she's the one who came up with the term river blindness. She actually, they went to a place and said, oh my God, this is a so terrible half the community here is blind, and the disease is called onchocerciasis, but what are we going to do about it? If we can't pronounce the disease, we can't do anything about it. How about we call it river blindness? And that's mm-hmm. how it, it stuck. And this woman is in her mid-90s now, and she's still you know writing letters to the World Health Organization, traveling to give speeches... I mean, just an incredible activist. And I was so taken back to remembering in my dorm room from when I was at college and I had the eightfold path up with Right Livelihood. And I just thought, <laughs> I hope I can hold to that until I'm in my 90s. Mm-hmm. And then here I was meeting someone in their 90s It was just that's such an incredible um, activist. And I thought, oh, I'd like to – I don't know. I was just, just so taken by all of these stories, and I hope that they are they are an offering. They were a way of listening, a way of hearing People's and also a way of highlighting and profiling so many different organizations that are working in the
1: mm-hmm. in the field
0: that I admire so much. Um, I mean, there's Helen Keller International, is based in New York, or Sight Savers, um, Evidence Action, lots of smaller local organizations like Mitosmap, Mitosath, or Amen Health. Just phenomenal people um, and organizations that that make up this this work.
2: I think it's so great. And one of the things that I found in sort of focusing on, on the narrative or on the story is that it tends to get uh, more full and in a way more truthful over time, because, you know, I've known people working in um, international development, for example, who in uh, the process of fundraising would say, well, I came back and I told this woman's story from this war torn nation and um, I just talked about, you know, everything she'd been through and the horrible experiences. And then, uh, she said, one, this woman said, one day I realized I never mentioned the fact that she's an attorney, you know, uh-huh. that she's educated that there's a, you know, she went through these terrible things and that should never be denied, but she also had inner resource, you know, she was educated, she yeah. had strengths. So I just didn't focus on that. And she said, that made me question my own compassion, huh. you know, cause I wasn't really seeing her in the. It was a little bit like you know seeing her as a victim and and not not focusing on that resilience, which was extraordinary also. And um, you know, the more we we kind of work to tell someone's story truthfully, or our own, you know, um, the more there is like that bigger picture because we're all composed of so many different aspects and and facets. Yeah,
0: and I think it's a, it's probably a tension in the fundraising world where there has been a lot of success over a long time, telling sort of sad stories Mm -hmm. and raising money from those sad stories. And I think, you know, we all need to kind of shift our perspective on how we tell narratives of others. Mm -hmm. I I remember going to this village in Burundi, and we were trying to tell, I mean, a lot of the short videos that we do, we don't have, any, we just sort of have kind of a rule at the end fund, to like no, you know, we try to do tell stories with dignity and tell stories that are more nuanced. And yes, you know, show what the diseases are and show what can be done about them. But sometimes it's complicated and mm-hmm. the stories aren't like too, totally linear and there's not this immediate before and after effect where you take one pill and everything's perfect. Like not not always. Um, it takes you know treatment over a number of years and, you know, combined with prevention efforts, And I think that that's what the book is trying to say. It's like, this is, you know, it's simple and complex at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's naughty, it's messy, it's, you know, it's, it's treatment, but on top of, you know, a war, maybe, or you're right, Mm -hmm. like very, very um, changing circumstances. And, This woman, when we went to her village, she said, "Well, if you're going to use any of these photos for your mailings to raise money, I want you to send me back a percentage personally." (laughs) Good for her. Cognizant that, like, people were coming around getting stories from her village, using it to fundraise, (laughs) and she was like, "If you're going back to England or something and going to fundraise, I want to, I want to (laughs) cut."
2: Good for her.
0: Laughed so much. I know it was good for you. But I think that, yeah, there's like just really I think to me what's so fascinating is that people's lives are so complex, yeah, I mean, we were interviewing this woman, Susan, who was you know a Maasai, we' were in you know in her in her home, there's like no running water, dirt floors, very, very remote, um you know, she's telling us about how she'd had this successful surgery, and now she's you know an advocate for others to get the surgery, she's doing her bead work. You know, but then her her cell phone's ringing, and she's taking orders. You know, for more beads. Like mm-hmm. she was just very modern. <laughs> you know, she's negotiating, and you think, uh, you know, she heads the village, and she's, you know, she says, "Oh, her her aunt has a laptop. She keeps her, you know, information on." He thought, <laughs> "Fabulous." It's just a lot of like lovely contradictions. Yeah, just, there's no simple story. There's no single story, and um, and I think, and also there's. I even think the idea of using the term developing and developed countries, is,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, hopefully we're getting away from It's hard. People do want – I love this new um, book Hans Rosling did on factfulness, you know, with the, maybe four different levels. But, um, you know, it's like there are parts of the United States that are – look more like developing countries than some of the places mm-hmm. I go to in Africa. Yeah, sure. And there's just massive innovation happening in Lagos and, you know, Nairobi and – Um. You know, so many places that just I think, yeah, I think you're right. Just truthfulness in storytelling means telling more complex stories. But at the same time, you know, needing to mobilize resources mm-hmm. for a project can sometimes um, lead us to telling more simple stories. And so, so for me, the way I reconcile it is sometimes I think there is a kernel of a simple story sometimes that is a way of bringing people into the story. Mm -hmm. Like it's true that, you know, 50 cents per person per year can treat people for these five diseases. That is true. Um, you know, because there's a donated medicines and because of leveraging community health workers, but that's not the, like, that may be a beginning piece to tell. And then what does it take to embed within health systems? And what does it take to build, um, you know, long-term sustainability and what does disease surveillance look like Mm -hmm. on top of that? And, you know, and I just think it's different audiences, Mm -hmm. but but don't pretend like the simple story is the only story.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. I know you have to go to work. (laughs) Ah. (laughs)
1: um,
2: You know, I'm so excited about your book. I think it's so tremendous and um, I love the vehicle of, of the stories and, and yet, you know, that's where we discover, a greater truth. I think it's, it's really wonderful. So thank you so much for joining me today as well.
0: Well, it's such a pleasure, Sharon. Thank you for encouraging me. And a lot of us that are working in this humanitarian space, I think you are um, such a light and such a resource for a lot of us who are serving in many ways around the world. So it's a real pleasure.
2: Well, thank you. So to learn more about Ellen's work, you can visit www. Dot .end.org dot and get yourself a copy of her new book Under the Big Tree which is available in hardcover and Kindle wherever books are sold. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at sharonsalzburg.com.